Welcome to the Waking Up Podcast. This is Sam Harris. Okay, well, this is an Ask Me Anything podcast. This is Ask Me Anything 8, and it's the first for supporters only of the podcast, which is you guys, presumably, if you're hearing this. So I'll, I'll jump right into this. I'll just a few notes about how we've structured this on my website. We've got the AMA page, as you know, and what we've done there is we've we've tried to replicate Reddit. I think we have most of the functionality there. It's not totally clear what is the best way to do this because there's definitely a founder's effect where the first questions hit the page and then all of you see them and vote them up and then those stay at the top of the heap for probably the whole time. Uh, There's now 1,300 questions for this AMA, so I'm only obviously answering a tiny fraction of those. I think I'll clear out all the questions after I record each AMA so that you guys have a fresh slate. And there's the ability to look at them randomly and and in terms of the most recent and most popular. So you can see them however you want, but there's just, I don't think there's any way to totally correct for the fact that the first people to ask questions have a, a real advantage. But many of the questions are good, and I am just taking it more or less from the top, and we'll see how far we get. First question. Would you talk about creativity? What kind of art and music and fiction do you like? Do you think creativity has as important a role to play as reason in helping to maintain a civil and flourishing society? Unfortunately, my answer to this most popular question, this was the most popular question, will be a little boring, I think, and uninformative for reasons that will become clear. Well, let's start with music. I love music, as most homo sapiens do, but um, I almost never listen to it. And this is because, generally speaking, I can't work to it. I can't write to anything that has lyrics. It just distracts me. And I tend not to write to any music in general, although sometimes I listen to something. But you know, 90% of the time I don't because it, it usually is distracting even without lyrics to me. And I credit that to um, a brain defect rather than to the problem of music. Obviously, I can't podcast to music. And when I'm working out or commuting, which would be the, the natural time to listen to it, I'm generally listening to other podcasts or audiobooks or the news. I, I just, it, it really is part of my work to get in as much information as I can throughout the day. And, and it's just, a, you know, there's just a bottleneck there. Part of it's due to work. Part of it's due to the fact that there's just so much that I'm interested in and want to know more about that. It's just, I feel the choice to listen to an hour of music or any one of the literally infinite number of audiobooks or podcasts I want to listen to, it almost always goes in the direction of, of the information. But that said, my, my taste in music is pretty wide-ranging. I, I like everything from electronica, which I sometimes write to, to Indian music, to classic rock. I mean, I'm, you know, I've just looked at a Spotify list here, and I've got really a crazy mix of things. Radiohead, Seven Dust, Thievery Corporation, Junip, the musical part of my brain that was formed in high school still likes Led Zeppelin. But the truth is I can go a very long time without intentionally listening to music. 
Uh, there are just not enough hours in the day, unfortunately. Now, as for fiction, I'm afraid fiction falls by the way for the same reason. I just, I used to read a lot of it. I was an English major the first time around in college and was planning to write exclusively fiction, really, when I, when I first started writing. So fiction is really my roots. But again, the, there's a functionally infinite number of nonfiction books I want to read. And so it's, I probably read one novel now for every 50 or more nonfiction books that I read. Probably the ratio is probably worse than that, actually. But I was, back in the day, I was very into Kafka and Nabokov and Joseph Conrad. And the first time I ever went to a book signing, it was for Raymond Carver, the short story writer. Uh, whose stories were were really defining fiction writing at that time. Uh, this is back in the 80s. And um, I actually did a few fiction writing workshops with Robert Stone and Richard Ford and Tobias Wolff, who were contemporary writers at, at that point who I was reading with pleasure. I've never been a big science fiction guy. I seem to be surrounded by science fiction people, but I... I I've read some of the classics, but I tend to notice that the dialogue is not as good and the, the, the writing is often not as good in science fiction, even celebrated science fiction, when you compare it to great literary fiction. And that, that's, that's actually one reason why I find, I think there was another question about Ayn Rand here and what I think of her. One reason I am not a fan of Ayn Rand is I find her writing punishingly bad. This is as distinct from her ideas, which are in several respects also punishingly bad, but her fiction books I, I could barely open. You know, just the, the dialogue was just too brutal. Uh, of late, I've, I've been happily plowing through the Harry Potter series with my daughter, but those are not books I would have read for myself, but still, they're fun when you're in the company of an eight-year-old. Back in the day, I was a big fan of The Lord of the Rings, which I read at least twice, if not three times. And uh, I also watch things in that genre. I, I watch Game of Thrones along with the rest of humanity, which I love. And you guys have heard me talk about Westworld and other AI-related things that I've watched with pleasure of late. I've actually read a few plays recently, two by Yasmina Reza, Art and the God of Carnage, which uh, were both wonderful. But um, again, my pleasure in reading and in reading good writing is just almost always fulfilled by nonfiction books. And there's such good ones. And some of them are so well written. And so, some of them really deliver the pleasures of literature. I was recently reading. Primo Levi's first book, If This Is a Man, about his experience in Auschwitz. And um, it does function, though true, it functions very much like a good novel in terms of the observations made of other human beings. It really is brilliant. And as far as my, my relationship to books here, I, I'm, I'm fairly fickle with books now. I, I can dimly remember what it was like to feel obligated to finish a book once I had started it. 
I really do not feel that now, and I, I recommend that you get over that hang-up if you still have it. It could be a generational thing. I, I think in, in the, the age of e-books, we're all growing more fickle, but it's just so easy to click through to the next thing if the thing you're reading is not satisfying you. And it's, it's a bit of a liability because I think we don't do the work to get into really good books that can just be slow going in the beginning. I think it's offset by the fact that it is just a fact that you will never read everything you want to read if you're a big reader, as I am. Uh, and once you realize that, well, then the spell is broken. You, the obligation to finish something that is not satisfying you deeply, that doesn't make any sense because they're, again, they're behind that book. There's just an endless number of books that, that are worth reading. So seek them out. As for the second part of this question, obviously creativity is important. And my answer is yes, absolutely. It is as important as nonfiction. It's, it's in large measure what makes life beautiful. And it's just, it's to some degree a professional liability and my own personal quirk that I spend so much time on one side of the bookstore as opposed to the other. Okay, next question. What one piece of advice would you give your 20-year-old self, your 30-year-old self, and your 40-year-old self? Well, it would probably be the same at each point, or at least there's a, a generic version of what I would say. And it would be based on a, on a few principles that I, I never saw very clearly, and which I probably don't see clearly enough now, but which I think work at each point. The first is ask people for help. Uh, this is something that I, I don't think I did enough in the beginning. I, I probably don't do it enough now. But you don't have to figure out everything for yourself. You know, if, if there's something you want to do, it's extraordinarily likely that there is someone who's already doing that thing at the highest level and, and that you could have access to such a person. And if, and if what you want to do is radically new in some way or you imagine that it is, you still need to gather the tools with which to do it. And there are more and less efficient ways to get those tools. And there really is nothing more efficient than doing it in the company of people who are further along the path than you are. So I, I recommend that you seek those people out. And I did this with some things. I did it with meditation. I was very systematic about finding experts to study with, and I, I did that a lot in my 20s. But I, I didn't do it so much with writing, despite the fact that I went to some fiction writing seminars early on. The ins and outs of publishing were not something I ever found a mentor for early, and, and I, I wasted a fair amount of time, I think, not having done that. So yeah, find someone who's doing more or less what you want to do or has mastered what you want to master in order to do the thing you want to do and get their advice earlier rather than later. The next principle would be that you should ditch perfectionism. Perfectionism is not your friend. It's a, this was a, a real issue for me in my 20s. It's become less and less so. But if that's your particular vice, and um, if it is, you might be confused enough to think it's a virtue. 
it's something to get over. I mean, perfectionism is just fear, really. It's a failure to recognize that life is a process. It's not a thing. You know, it's a verb. It's not a noun. And any progress toward a goal is iterative, really. So you, you, can't, you can't wait for things to be perfect before putting your stuff out there. And I'm not saying you should show people work that you know is terrible, but you have to recognize when you're just spinning your wheels and when you're being motivated by a fear of failure and you're not getting the, the, the feedback that would help you improve whatever it is you're doing in a timely way. And, and for so many things, sooner is better than later. It's better to find your way with a, with a bias toward actually doing stuff rather than planning to do stuff or thinking about doing stuff. And so that's advice that I'm taking more and more now. This podcast is an example of that. I mean, it's just, I keep just putting stuff out there in a, in a much more raw form than I do in books. And, you know, there's, there's obviously some dangers in doing that. And there's some things you can't quite do as well, but it is a, it's a different muscle really to be exercising. I find it very helpful. And my relationship to writing when I do it also has more of that character. I think it's the right way to be. I guess there's another point here that's related to perfectionism. It's you shouldn't be taken in by the illusion of permanence. There are very few decisions in life that matter for the rest of your life or that are anything like final decisions. I mean, apart from something like the decision to have kids, which obviously is, has very big implications, both for you and the kids, apart from that, you really don't have to think about decisions that must be good for the rest of your life. You don't have to know what you're doing for the rest of your life. You only need to know that something's a good use of your time for the next few years, maybe. maybe I, mean, I think five-year chunks makes the most sense to think about. And that, that can free you up. And I, you know, I think I was, I can't, I can't think of a, a specific moment where this would have um, totally changed how I approached my life. But I, I know that I was at various points anchored to a kind of illusion of permanency. And that's, that's worth getting over. One more thing occurred to me. It was something I would have told my 30-year-old self. This is the self that wandered into Half Gracie's Jiu-Jitsu Academy in um, 1997. I think I, I think I was exactly 30 to see my first Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu class, and I just did not know what to make of it. I was I was kind of horrified to see or to imagine myself rolling around on the floor with sweaty strangers getting strangled. I just could not map that on to who I was or wanted to be. So I didn't even try it. I just saw this class happening and, and thought, okay, that's clearly not my cup of tea. But had I jumped in, I, I'm, I know it would have taken me just 10 minutes to realize how groundbreaking this was. 
and I would have started BJJ more than a decade before I did. So that was a missed opportunity. I don't have a lot of regrets in life, but that is one of them. Okay, next question. Have you ever considered that you may be wrong about the value, though of course not the veracity, of religion? I feel that the, quote, liberal youth of today is basically a cult, which may be filling religion's void. I've always been on your side of the religion debate, but feel that the breakdown we're seeing in Western societies is connected to the rapid downfall of religion. Do you sometimes think that you're perhaps overly optimistic slash idealistic about human decency and intelligence and consider that we may be too stupid and bestial to replace religion with reason? I can see how you might worry about that, or one might worry about that, but I don't spend a lot of time worrying about that myself. I think I'm just willing to roll the dice with the truth here. I don't have a deep argument about why that concern is unfounded, but I just think that the truth is so much more empowering. And by truth, I mean not so much whatever conclusion you have in hand, but the pattern of thinking that would allow you to arrive at a valid conclusion. And a willingness to test your beliefs and correct your errors, right? So a a scientific frame of mind is what I'm talking about, and and a philosophical frame of mind. It's really a a disposition to wonder whether or not you're wrong, and um, an openness to arguments and evidence that suggest you're wrong. I mean, this is truth-seeking behavior. And if done in a way that's actually unconstrained by prejudice and self-deception, it is totally destabilizing to religious orthodoxy. I can no more say that we should go easy on the God of Abraham for fear that Christians and, and Jews and Muslims will go berserk than I can say that we should encourage people to believe in Zeus for all the good it might do them or all the, the harm it might prevent. And you should know that I continually hear from people who have lost their religion and are powerfully relieved to have lost it. I'm really vividly in touch with the opposite message, the fact that it's possible to lose one's faith and to feel relieved of a problem rather than to be thrust into a new problem. So you should remember that for most of these faiths, people are spending a lot of their time thinking about unpleasant things like hell and sin. There's a tremendous amount of fear and there's a tremendous amount of guilt and and inner conflict here. As Hitch used to say, you're born sick and you're commanded to be well by these religions. And and that's a, for most people, a, a fairly untenable situation, even if they don't acknowledge it. So for all the people who you might worry have lost their moorings, or never found them due to the absence of religion, there are those who have finally recognized how valuable their lives are, really the the one life they know they have. And now they're newly in touch with that. I mean, once you shed the fantasy life that is encouraged by religion, once you cease to be otherworldly, then you recognize that your life is not a rehearsal. It's not a way station. It's not something to be 
casually sacrificed for a, a, a fantasy of a world to come. So this, I mean, your, your life in this moment is what is profound. This universe, the only universe you can know, is the appropriate object of your awe. Not some old book that tells you how to sacrifice goats. Now, this universe is a mystery, and it's a beautiful one. And what is neither mysterious nor beautiful are the instructions for living that you find in books like the Bible and the Quran. So I, I don't worry too much about arguing the case for reason, which is, again, the, the case against faith. But I do worry about the problem of living a meaningful life and about how people's uncertainty about how to do that leads to unhappiness and, and worse, really. I think I said in the end of faith somewhere that for me it boils down to love and curiosity. And I, I think that does cover it. I mean, obviously we need love. I mean, you, you, if you don't love someone in your life, perhaps not everyone, but surely someone, then you, you are missing something. You're missing one of the main things that makes life good. So life without love is a problem, but so is life without curiosity. I mean, curiosity is your interest in knowing what's true, your interest in knowing what's going on. So it is reason, and it is science, and it is a, a fact-based orientation, and it is honesty. It is, it is the thing, I mean, this is a place where love and, and curiosity really come together. It, is, it, is a, it gives you the ethic of being honest with yourself and honest with others, and wanting to live in a society that encourages those norms. So I think love and curiosity get you more or less everything, because then you want to straighten yourself out. You know, I mean, then you want to, to overcome the impediments you find in yourself to being a good person. And one of the consequences of being honest with others is if you find things in yourself that you can't be honest about, well, then you want to change. This is what it is to live a coherent life. Relationships would be ruined if people could overhear the things you say when they leave the room well, then you, are, you have a problem with your relationships or you have a problem with your, with your mind, right? You know, I'm not saying that there's not some natural distinction between how we are in private and in the privacy of our own minds and how we are with, with others, but insofar as it's possible to get who you are really to cohere with how you want to be in the world and how those you most respect want you to be so as to respect you in turn, well, then that's, that is what it is to live a really authentic and ethical life. Whatever philosophy you have, you have to be able to live it. This is what it is to live an examined life. It's not merely understanding yourself conceptually and then just thinking those thoughts, it's about using that understanding to live a better life. And this is one of the failings of Western philosophy, certainly in its analytic form, 
or even in its continental form, really. I mean, you either get gibberish or you get brittle academic squabbling, and there's not a lot in between in Western philosophy. It was not always so. If you go back to the Greeks, well, then philosophy had to translate into action. But since then, it's been possible to be very smart and to come to good answers on difficult questions and yet not have that translate into wisdom, right? And, and so many of us have had to import Eastern ideas into our, into our philosophizing so as to marry clear thinking to personal insight and change. As I think all of you know, I, I think meditation is, is instrumental in doing that. And, um, you know, about which more later, when my app finally gets released, I promise you that's coming. That's something I would go back in time to tell myself. It's harder to make an app than you realize. But finally on this question, the problem of finding meaning in this life, as I've said before, is really a pseudo-problem. Because it really is it's a lack of attention. And this is where meditation comes in, or an ability to focus comes in. Because it really, you, you wouldn't ask this question if you are a surfer catching the biggest wave of your life. I mean, that's not the moment where you ask this question, you know, what does life mean, right? Or what is it good for? Because you are living your life in a fully engaged way in, in that moment. And this, this concern really is, is something that only appears in those moments when we're failing to be immersed in something beautiful or interesting. The answer I recommend to that question is, is a, is a non-answer. It is pay more attention to anything really, but certainly to things that are beautiful and interesting. And you will forget this concern. I mean, you, 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 and forget it in a way that, that is not trivial. I mean, you'll forget it in that you will, you'll be occupying a space where there, there is no foundation for that concern. It is impossible to worry about the meaning of life when you are really connecting with someone you love or when you're really discovering something that fascinates you or when you're just one-pointed on anything, really. It could just be your breath. That's the truly subversive discovery one finds in meditation is that it doesn't even have to be interesting. It really just the quality of mind you get when you can simply pay one-pointed attention to anything, that quality of mind is enough. It is enough to merely be conscious. Okay, next question. In your opinion, why do so many Americans have trouble accepting science while enjoying the fruits of science in their daily lives? Can we blame religious fundamentalism as the only contributing factor? Do we have an uncommonly poor science education in the U.S.? Is science somehow disturbing some fundamental human value system or emotional state unique to Americans? Well, I don't think it's unique to Americans. This problem is elsewhere, certainly, and I think it, it does diminish as the influence of religion diminishes. So I think religion is the prime offender, but there are other kinds of irrationality that are, are secular or non-religious, which have a similar effect. I mean, so there, there are liberal, secular biases that 
lead to positions that are, that are clearly unscientific. When you take resistance to vaccines or um, GMOs, this is the Whole Foods set. These people are, tend to not be religious, and, they're, and they tend to be well-educated. Uh, you go to some of the most well-educated neighborhoods and some of the best schools. Although this is changing now because the laws are changing, but until fairly recently, you found levels of vaccination of children that were on par with sub-Saharan Africa, actually compared unfavorably to some countries in sub-Saharan Africa. It's just mind-boggling. The GMO concern is ironically valid suddenly for a, for a different reason. The reasons why people were concerned, the idea that they're pulling foreign genes into a tomato, say. I mean, you take a gene from another plant or even from a fish and put it into a tomato. Well, that's gross, and, and we don't want to eat that tomato. But this is based on this notion that DNA is somehow species-specific. It isn't, right? And, and we have been manipulating the genes of every crop and every animal we eat for thousands of years. Everything you eat has been engineered in a less precise way than what is being done now. There's a, a marginal concern about introducing proteins that people might be um, allergic to. And so people with allergies perhaps need to be, you know, obviously, if you, if you brought in a peanut protein or some allergen to which people were allergic and you, you stuck that in some novel place in the, in the food supply, well, you could create problems for people. But generally speaking, there's nothing sacred about DNA. And the more general concern is, are we making food that is as nutritious and healthy as possible? And if you could make something like white rice far more nutritious than it is, well, that is just a good thing, objectively so. The anti-GMO people who resist that sort of innovation are on the wrong side of history there, clearly, and on the wrong side of human hunger and, and malnutrition. But ironically, there is a concern about GMOs because what many farmers are doing with them is they're, they're using crops that have been modified to be more resistant to Roundup, the weed killer. And so now they're spraying much more Roundup on the crops, and we are eating much more Roundup. Now, perhaps this has changed. This is about a year since I, I heard this news, but I mean, that, that obviously is a concern. That's a dumb use of, of the technology insofar as you don't want to eat more and more Roundup. So that, that concern about GMOs is, is totally valid, but that's not the concern that gave us the, the anti-GMO panic. But the bigger issue here is that science isn't just a set of facts. It's a method of assessing facts. So this is a point I, I brought up a few moments ago. It's a way of thinking. And the fact that you don't want something to be true or the fact that you want something else to be true, that should put you on your guard when you're thinking about things, whether it's food or anything else. So it's not just religion, but yeah, it's, it's our science education in the U.S. is not what it should be. I think we're, we're not at the, the absolute bottom of the developed world, but we're, I forget where we were. We're somewhere you know, in the 20s or 30s of, of the rankings, I believe, on STEM topics. 
could have that a little wrong, but you know, we're not in the top ten, but we're not we're not ranked at with the the Islamic theocracies, certainly. It's something that we can always improve. And religious dogmatism is certainly a way to prevent it in any society. It's hard to escape the influence of religion here in general. Next question. In meditation, is it possible that the experience of selflessness is just the obscuring of the self by other cognitive processes and not proof that the self is an illusion? In other words, how can we be sure that the self is in fact illusory and not just a construct that can be occluded? Well, this is something I, I think I answer in Waking Up, the book, and I think I might answer it in the, in the talk, the, the video that's on my website. It really comes down to what is stable when you are really paying attention, right? So, I mean, this is how we assess whether certain things are illusory or not. There's some, some problems with this analogy, but when you think of most visual illusions, certainly many of them, they're the kinds of things where if you pay closer attention to them, they go away, right? So they, they collapse into something else. And then you're, then you're led to see them in the illusory way again when you're, when you're not paying close enough attention. Again, there are some visual illusions that you just can't see correctly no matter how hard you try, but I'm not really thinking of those. So I'm thinking of something like the, the Kinesa Klein image of the triangle that's um, is a pseudo-triangle. It looks like a white triangle on a white page, but it's just being implied by these three quarter circles that are articulating the tips of the triangle. And you, you, you basically complete the triangle with your misled visual system. But if you pay attention, you can see there's no line there and there's no triangle there. So it's a little bit like asking, well, what if there's really a triangle in the Kinesa Klein image? If you just, every time I look for that edge, it's gone. But it appears again when I'm not really looking precisely. So what if, what if not looking precisely is somehow granting you more access to the truth than really paying attention. Well, that's just not the way the world tends to work, right? So just to be clear about how this relates to meditation, once you have learned how to meditate to the point where you can pay close enough attention to your experience and see that there's no self in the middle of it, there's no ego riding around in your head, there's no thinker in addition to the thoughts that are arising in each moment. Once you can really do that, well then, anytime you really pay attention to anything, this sense of self that had been really only presumed in the previous moment falls away. And then you, you actually can't reconstruct it at that point. You can't, with the full presence of your attention, feel like a self. None of these analogies are perfect, but have you ever been in a, a restaurant or a room where there was a, a full-length mirror that you didn't notice was a mirror, and it's just you, you just thought the room was twice the size, and at a certain point you noticed, and then you could see just 
how it was crystal clear that it was in fact a mirror and not more people or more chairs or more tables or another window onto the outside world. You could just see, you could see that it was a mirror. You could see that it was, its relationship to the rest of what you could see actually in the room was not what it had seemed. So what process of paying less attention could convince you that that wasn't really a mirror, right? Again, not a perfect analogy, but there's something about the, the shift from taking something to be one way and then seeing it collapse into its more stable aspect. I think in, in my book, Waking Up, I use the, what's a traditional Indian analogy of mistaking a rope for a snake. So you see, I see some coiled form in the corner and your, your snake detector goes off and you're startled, but then you look more closely and you see that what you took to be scales was just the braids of a rope and lo and behold, it really is just a rope. The concern is, well, maybe it really is a snake, right? But it's, if every time you pay attention to it and you pay your most highly trained attention, if every time you focus, it is one way, and it only ever seems to be the other way by virtue of your not paying attention, by virtue of, of your being distracted by other things, in this case, by being lost in thought, well, then it's impossible for me to take seriously the concern that the way it seems when you're not paying attention is the way it really is. I can't map that onto any other type of knowledge, and it just doesn't seem true here. And again, it's the kind of thing where when you're paying attention, you can't reconstruct it. You know, you can't see the snake again. You can't see that it's other than a mirror when you're paying attention. And you can't feel like a self when you are clearly looking at anything once you know how to meditate. Next question. Are you concerned that some of your listeners are becoming dogmatic and inadvertently taking the wrong lessons from your talks and podcasts? For example, the somewhat large number of listeners who support Trump and who are surprised that you didn't support him. That would seem to indicate that some nominal supporters have a shallow understanding of your views. Well, yeah, I mean, I was mystified by the level of surprise I got from some people around my repudiation of Trump. It was readily explained by these people, certainly most of them being attracted to me for my criticism of Islam, for the most part, and just assuming that if I was worried about Islam and Islamism and jihadism and, and wanted a president who would speak honestly about these things, well, then I would overlook Trump's other flaws and clearly prefer him to Hillary Clinton, and I've talked ad nauseum about why uh, that's not the case with me, and why I think Trump, even though he makes some of the right noises here, is far worse than Clinton would have been on this particular issue. But you know that's that's neither here nor there at this point. I you know I think it's a more general problem of it being impossible to say everything you think about the thing you're talking about in a short enough span so that 100% of the people listening to you understand what you actually think 
or don't draw the wrong implication. So it's, it's just possible to get me talking for an hour on any topic and to, based on your own associations or, or based on what I forgot to say or emphasized strangely in that hour, you, you just you draw the wrong conclusion. You think I'm you think I must be a fan of someone I'm not or a critic of someone who I would otherwise support. But I, I guess there's another feature here that just occurs to me is that because I touch so many controversial topics, it's really easy to run afoul of people's prejudices. People have very strong opinions about things like gun control or the link between Islam and terrorism or atheism versus religion or racism or any of these topics that I've touched time and again. and. If you don't say something that perfectly aligns with their prejudices, uh, well, then things tend to go haywire in their brains. So that, to some degree, is also a kind of engine of misunderstanding. So it's a professional liability. I'm doing the best I can. Next question. If you could... Would you and should you choose not to die? Is finding a, quote, cure for aging a laudable quest? Granting the fact that people die has been of great evolutionary benefit and, and that ubiquitous, quote, immortality would cause numerous practical problems. Would it be moral to deny people a choice when relevant technology is inevitably developed? Well, I don't think it's inevitable. I think it's we can close the door to that. I think some things are inevitable, but cheating death is probably not one of them. You know, I, I share Aubrey de Grey's take here in terms of probably not his, his level of hope that we will conquer death, but his sense that it would be a good thing to do and that most of the ethical concerns people raise are ill-considered. This concern about future generations and us running out of room. Well, I mean, we, we're, this is a problem we have to tackle anyway. We have to figure out what we're going to do generations hence when the planet gets too crowded. And I think we're all thinking that technology will save us, will become multiplanetary, and that, that's the future to hope for. And if we do stabilize our population, it's not totally clear that there's an elegant way to do that. Because you, you have a, on some level, the economy and the care for an aging population, this is all a Ponzi scheme. You need, certainly until we have robots that can do the caregiving and do the wealth creation, we need new generations. And that just, by sheer arithmetic, forces the population to grow and grow. Now, it's not growing as fast as some of the doomsayers said it would some decades ago, people like Paul Ehrlich. And, and we may stabilize at something around 10 billion or 12 billion. I forget what the projections are now. We're going to hit 9 billion fairly soon. But this idea that, that older people really should have the good sense to die on time so as to make room for the young, that doesn't make much ethical sense to me. If anything, older, truly healthy people, you know, people who are 
neurologically intact and, and living lives that are every bit as valuable as they were when they were half their age, those people are more valuable once we cheat death than younger people. These people are, have more wisdom, more experience. They, they, they have richer lives than children. In the current environment where death is inevitable, the reason why children are thought to be more valuable than adults is that children have their whole lives ahead of them. If we had a cure for death, well, then we would all be children in some sense. We would all have our whole lives ahead of us. And then the question is, who are the most interesting children, right? And, you know, I would take David Deutsch over anyone in your kid's class or in anyone in my kid's class any day of the week in terms of, you know, a mind you want to protect from dissolution. And it does put pressure on some of our ethical intuitions there. But, you know, I, I don't know that we'll be in that situation, but it, it doesn't seem unethical to seek it. And, you know, as has often been pointed out, if we did achieve a cure for aging, this wouldn't be necessarily synonymous with a cure for death, right? So it could make the risk of accident, you know, the risk of, it could make the risk of being run over by a bus all that more intolerable. I mean, because if you, if you could expect to live 3,000 years, if you could just avoid being run over, well, then, <laughs> then it's, it really is something to be uh, uh, worried about because it's an even greater loss in that case. But anyway, I should probably just get Aubrey de Grey on the podcast and get him talking about this because he's, he's very interesting on the ethics side and the engineering side of just how we could conceivably move forward and, and cure aging is also an interesting one. Though, um, frankly, I don't know enough about it still to know whether I share his, his hopes at all. I just, I just had the physicist Jeffrey West on the podcast. I think I'm going to release that. I either released it before, just before this AMA or just after, but it's not yet released. He's certainly skeptical about whether we um, can cure aging in the way that Aubrey hopes. The real answer to your question is, I hope Aubrey is right here. Okay, next question. What's a day in the life of Sam Harris like? How much of your time do you devote to writing, planning podcasts, tweeting, meditating, etc.? Well, uh, again, unfortunately, this is a. Um, I, I know what a satisfying answer sounds like to a question like this, and I fear I, I am not going to satisfy you because I really, I do not systematize my time to any significant degree now. I mean, I, I seem to get more or less everything I want done. Although that's not to say I don't get to the end of most days feeling like they were too short. I, I certainly do. But I don't write at the same time or plan podcasts at the same time or much less tweet at the same time uh, or meditate at the same time every day. And I, there are many days where I do none of those things or, or very few of those things. And there are many days where I do all of those things. So it's, it is very intuitive and kind of freeform the way I approach all of this. And this, this goes to schedule as well. I mean, I, I can be 
I could meditate first thing in the morning some days, or in the afternoon on others, or even late at night on others. I can be editing a podcast at 2 in the morning or at 7 in the morning. I, I certainly can't recommend this as a way to be. I think there, there's something good about having a schedule, and, and there are times in my life where I have had one and have stuck to it more or less, but I don't know. I just I, I feel like I'm in a period of life, this is a, a period that that has gone on for quite some time now, where I just... As I get closer to deadlines, I, I find like I find that I just have to get things done, and so, so you know, things will happen at night or, or whenever they have to happen, in order to to just get the work done. And I also like the freedom that comes with not being dogmatic about when things have to happen. There's a downside to this. I mean, it's possible to just not get everything done if you are not disciplined. I mean, this is, you know, I, I take Jocko Willink's mantra to heart, at least conceptually. This, his favorite mantra is, discipline equals freedom. There is something to that. There is, there is something to understanding what your priorities are and just knocking out the things that are most important to you really in the order of their importance starting first thing in the morning. Because then you're guaranteed to have hit your most important things first. And I tend to do that a little bit. I mean, I, I will sometimes rather often go after the mission critical, most important thing first in the morning. But what that is, whether that's writing or podcasting or meditating, or it can be any number of things, it's not tweeting. And it's tweeting less and less. I think the uh, I think I've reached diminishing returns on social media at this point. So I, I've been doing less on social media. But again, yeah, you know, I I am much more in a podcasting phase now than in a writing phase. Very soon, I will be in a in a, a phase of creating more content for my app, and that will have to take precedence for a little while. So it's kind of project specific what I do. Again, apologies for the unsatisfying answer. You can take probably nothing of value into your own lives from that. Next question. You've said that human life is inherently worth living. Why? How would you respond to a philosophical pessimist who says that even the best lives are not worth living because happiness cannot compensate for all the suffering? And there's a related question here from, I think, from a different person. Why have children? I'm finding it hard to justify the decision to have biological children in the present day, given that they're relatively likely to experience suffering, for example, due to the effects of climate change. I believe it morally wrong to create life if the quality of that life is likely to be low. What is your take? There's no question that my sense that life is worth living presumes that it is on balance actually worth living, which is to say that the, the happiness or the, the potential for happiness outweighs the misery. And it's hard to find any basis to be confident about that. I, I, I certainly, I don't know that I could be confident that that's true the world over. If you take all of the misery and all of the happiness and sum them, however one could do that, 
Does it turn out that life was a good thing or a bad thing? And I'm not even sure that's the right way to do it. This opens the door to all of the the problems with population ethics. Because then you have to think of what's possible going forward, right? So what are, what's the value of all of the lives that have made the current moment possible? And what's the value to future generations of all of the, the groundwork we're laying for their possible happiness? So if, you know, if we become a species, not even a necessarily human species, I mean, who knows how we will change in the future, but if we become a global civilization that survives for billions of years, well, then the decision not to exist today is the decision not to allow for that possibility. This is the, the ethical value of mitigating existential risk, right? I mean, this is, this is why it's important, if you think it is important, to prevent an asteroid from hitting the Earth and wiping us all out. Because you know, presumably the, with a big enough asteroid, the, the suffering would be minimal, but it would cancel the opportunity for creativity and bliss that awaits our descendants who work out all the problems that we uh, haven't yet been able to work out. I'm fairly connected to the sense of how good life could be right how how happy it's possible to be how fulfilled it's possible to be therefore i'm connected to how much needless misery there is and and really so much of it is needless so much of it is misery that we create for ourselves personally by being lost in in neurotic thoughts that go nowhere and misery we create for one another collectively by not understanding just the principles of human cooperation well enough so that we can build the best lives and the best societies possible. I'm fairly sure that life could be much better than it's tending to be for most of us. And closing the door to that possibility seems to me to be unambiguously a bad thing. And insofar as having kids is a bet on the chance that they will be able to avail themselves of that opportunity, I think it's a good bet. But if I thought that the world was guaranteed to get worse and that life for the next generation was almost certain to be terrible, well, then I I would take seriously this question of whether it's ethical to have kids. I think it's it's not a crazy way to think. I just I think I'm more optimistic than that. I guess the only way to say it is that I'm not so worried that I spend any time thinking that I might have done a horrible thing by bringing my daughters into the world. I certainly worry about the world. I worry about them. I worry about what their lives are like now and will be like in the future, but none of my worrying about the future has made me think, oh man, this was probably a terrible thing to do. I feel like it's, there's almost no way to think that thought, given my connection to my daughters. So I'll leave it to the psychoanalysts among you to figure out what the hell's going on with me on that topic. Uh, next question. 
Do you take notes when reading books or articles? How do you organize them? What's your process? In other words, how do you optimize your reading experience in such a way that you'll retain as much as possible from a book or article? Again, you'll find in me not the brilliant life hacker who has an answer for you to immediately adopt. This will not satisfy. Part of this is a consequence of doing most of my reading now in digital form, where there's just not a good way to take notes. And once taken, there's not a good way to use those notes. Kindle is really deficient in this regard, but I do a lot of reading on a Kindle now or in a, on a Kindle app on an iPad or phone. With physical books, I tend to mark them up. I've always had a fair amount of underlining and, and marginalia, and then I go back and just look at the book before I react to it in writing or, or podcast about it. With digital books, I... I highlight sometimes, but I almost never go back and look at those highlights. I um, sometimes will take audio notes into my phone and transcribe them, but not mostly. I, I tend to rely on my memory more than anything and go back and, and search on the basis of what I remember if I need to do that. I mean, usually I can remember a phrase or a word and, and actually just do a search and get to the passage I'm remembering. And part of it, I, I've just reconciled myself to forgetting many of the things I want to remember. I read in areas now that, are, that I, I, I've visited so many times that it's not really about remembering everything. If I get a few new ideas from a book, well, then that's been a very useful book. And I, and I don't really worry about forgetting all the interesting bits I encountered along the way, because you tend to encounter them again in other forms, and whatever sticks, sticks. In some sense, this is what Google has done to many of us, because it's just, you know, Google has more or less perfect memory. And if you know enough to interact with it, well, then you can go get that thing you just forgot anyway. So I have outsourced some of my memory to the internet, but generally it's not a matter of storing things in places where I know I will find them again. That's not what I'm tending to do in my research. I either use it immediately or trust that I'll be able to find it when I need it. Okay, perhaps one more question here. Actually, there are two questions here that are seemingly unrelated, but they, they're kind of joined at the hip for me. So first, first one here is, can you talk about your parenting philosophy and your experience raising your children? Any insights on how to raise intelligent, mindful, thoughtful, and caring children? What values do you think most important to instill in your children? The next question here, I was raised an ultra-Orthodox Jew. I became an atheist and left Judaism two years ago, but my wife and kids are still religious. My daughter is turning six, and I haven't yet told her that I'm not religious. I'm afraid that it will confuse her, because she goes to an ultra-Orthodox school, where they teach her that people like me are evil. However, I read your book, Lying, where you claim there's no situation where a person must lie. What would you do in this situation? Those two questions are obviously related on the, on the value of honesty, which, which is my 
my answer to the first question. I, I think honesty is is a kind of master value, certainly for for relationships, and I'm extremely honest with my daughters. Oh, I guess can't really say that about the three-year-old because she's currently Wonder Woman or Dorothy or Batman, and I don't know what she uh, understands about half of what I say at this point. But my eight-year-old really gets this value drummed into her, and so she's extremely honest with us. And the price this person is paying for raising his daughter in a religious cult with a wife who is still a devout member of this cult, is that he? there's this obvious tension between him being able to be honest with his daughter about who he is and how he sees the world and his concern that not only will she be confused by this honesty, but will she actually love him less? I mean, this, is, this really can go off the rails for people. I hear from people in precisely this situation there's every version of this, but I've heard from the, the ultra-Orthodox Jewish variant a fair amount. People lose their marriages, and you know their kids disown them, or their parents disown them, or it's just it's a disaster for people. But you know, this is not so much an argument against honesty or the or the or an argument in favor of the utility of lying. It's a it's an illustration of the price you pay when you're surrounded by religious maniacs. Right. It's, this is a this is the external cost, or you know, the internal cost, depending on how you want to think about it, of having a culture of dogmatism intrude into your personal ethics, or put pressure on your personal ethics. You know, once you're in a situation like that, there there are no great answers. There is no great answer to how you should talk to your daughter about what you really think or what is scientifically true when you have a legitimate concern that your wife will leave with her the moment she finds out that you no longer believe in the God of Abraham. Yeah, that's just a bad situation. Now, contrary to what is said in the question, it's not that I, I think there are no situations where you can lie or where it's ethically permissible to lie, but these situations are ones that are, are analogous to self-defense. I mean, they're almost like they're situations where you, would, you might otherwise use violence to protect yourself or someone else legitimately. And lying in that case is on the, kind of on the continuum of violence, and it's, it's the least violent thing you could do. So, you know, yes, do you want to lie to the Nazis who come to your door looking for Anne Frank? Well, yes, I think you do want to lie to them. And you, you actually might want to kill them also if it were in your power. Those are the, the ethics of emergency, and I think lying is admissible, in, in, you know, depending on the details there. But generally, we don't want situations where we need to lie to the people who are closest to us, and you want to be able to, to design your life, and we want to design our societies where the norm of honesty is protected, right? And a religious cult is one of the worst places to try to do that. But generally speaking on parenting, I think honesty is a kind of master value. And this does reach into things as seemingly trivial as a belief in Santa Claus, right? I mean, there was no point in her upbringing where we felt the need to 
tell our daughter that Santa Claus really exists so as to juice her enthusiasm over getting presents on Christmas, say. The analogy I give here is that you don't have to make Halloween more fun by telling your kids that witches and warlocks and zombies really exist. It's fun enough to indulge those things as you indulge any work of fiction. And you don't tell them that the Lord of the Rings is a true history of the world, right? Or that Harry Potter is. Kids don't need any help in finding fiction fun. You'd be surprised to hear from all the people, as I have, who, when they discovered that their parents were lying to them about Santa Claus, they were actually disturbed by that. I mean, it actually opened the door to the question of, what else are they lying to me about? How has this deception been so effective for so long, and what else can't I trust them about? This is something that people actually remember worrying about as six-year-olds and seven-year-olds and eight-year-olds. It's not a personal memory I have, but I can well imagine that's the case. Generally speaking, on, on raising kids, it's, this is something that has been touched upon in a few podcasts, I think with Paul Bloom mostly. The current research suggests that we raise our kids less than we might think. The biggest contribution is giving them the genes you've given them and then not doing something terrible to screw them up. But if you love your kids and you're not beating them and you're keeping them safe, they, to a large degree, to to really a disconcerting degree, will become who they become more or less independent of what you do. Therefore, you're doing the good and well-intentioned things that you do is not so much about determining who they become. I mean, obviously, you want to give them all the educational opportunities you can, but the 50% environmental contribution to their intellectual life that research suggests is there is largely not a matter of what you do. I mean, they, they will be raised by their peer group even more than they're raised by you. This, is, this goes to Judith Rich Harris's research. If you can pick their peer group or steer them toward a good one rather than a bad one, well, then that would probably be a good thing to do. Uh, I haven't yet had to confront that with my daughters. It really is a, a matter of having the best relationships you can have. And again, their love and curiosity If you love your kids and you're interested in them, it's hard to see how you can go wrong. Perhaps I'll get one more question here, and we will call it a night. Who have been your favorite podcast guests thus far, and why? I can't really say I've had have a favorite. I mean, you know, I obviously love speaking to David Deutsch, who I've already mentioned, because he has just such a clear and unusual mind. I really, I feel like I'm talking to an elf out of the Lord of the Rings when I talk to David. I've had a lot of good luck with physicists in general. You know, Max Tegmark was great, and he's coming back on soon. Uh, Lawrence Krauss and I had a, a very good conversation. As I said, I just spoke to Jeffrey West. I'm not quite sure why I enjoy talking to physicists so much. I think it's it might be in part because I, I'm not fully competent to disagree with them, right? It's, it's, like, it's like I'm not a physicist myself, and so 
I can only trust my opinions on the margins of what we're talking about and then just have to be interested in what they are telling me, right? I just have to be interested in, in understanding the world as they see it. And by contrast, when I'm talking to a psychologist or a philosopher or a, a neuroscientist, I, I, I have much more of a dog in that fight, and I'm much more attuned to the significance of differences of opinion there. And so it's, it's just a different kind of conversation. It's not that it's, it's necessarily worse. You know, I love talking to Paul Bloom, for instance. He's been one of my favorites. He's been on the podcast, I think, three times. But when there's, when there's massive overlap between my competence and the other person's, something else comes online. And it's not just a matter of being interested in what they say. It's my error detector never comes offline. There's something satisfying about being a student again in a very clear-cut way in many of these conversations. But I've, you know, I've loved so many of these guests, and it is such a pleasure to, as I've said, to have a venue, an occasion, and an excuse to talk to these people. Because now what's happening with the podcast is I'm, I'm reaching out to people who, they're not in my circle. These are not people who I would talk to anyway. Paul Bloom is someone who, even in his case, it's not that I, I talk to him in general, just for the fun of it. I mean, he's, he's not someone I'm in touch with all that regularly. It's, it's, it really is a matter of getting him back on the podcast. But he's someone who I already knew, but now I'm reaching out to people who, who I've never met and am even unlikely to meet. And there would be no reason to reach out to them but for the fact that I have this forum in which to talk to them about what most interests them and most worries them and most preoccupies them. It really is a, it's an honor to do this work. And all of you who are listening to this podcast now are supporting this work and, and making it possible for me to do it. So again, thank you for that. It's an immense privilege. And it's one I don't take lightly. And with that, I will, I will sign off. This has been another AMA, and I think I'll try to do one of these a month or so. I think I may scrub the webpage of all your questions so that you have a clean slate, and we'll see how that goes. If I, if I, if I do that and you all complain, I may cease to do that, but I have a hunch that's a good idea. And if your question wasn't answered here, obviously you can you can ask it again. The chances are it wasn't. I answered maybe 10 or so, and there were 1,300 in the queue. I think starting fresh each time is probably the way to go. Again, thanks for your support. Thanks for listening. And I will see you next time on the public podcast.